Thank you, Rob. That's super. That's super. Are you all sitting comfortably? <laughs> Not for long. No, no. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. It's tremendous to uh, better bring the word of God for you this morning. Um, it's a word that's been really burning in me to bring for some weeks, for about six weeks. And each week that's gone by, God has uh, sort of clarified it more for me to know what I'm to bring to you this morning. It's called minus to plus. Minus to plus. Some of you will be sitting there, particularly if you're my age, you'll be sitting there thinking, hey, I've heard that before somewhere. Well, you're quite right. Yes, you have heard it before somewhere. There was a leaflet that came through every house door in Britain, delivered uh, by the post office. Every household in Britain got this leaflet, and it was called Minus to Plus. God wanted somebody in Britain, and in the end, he found somebody willing to do it because it's a millions of pound exercise, just work it out, to put a booklet. It's a booklet, actually, through every door using Royal Mail in Britain. This leaflet was called Minus to Plus, and it sums up my theme very well this morning. Let me read it to you. Um, yes. In Christ, minus is turned to plus, negative to positive. On the cross, darkness changes to light, death to life, hate to love, chains to freedom, fear to faith, despair to joy, brokenness to wholeness, hell to heaven. Just as Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, turned the wood of the cross into the door to life, so the Lord seeks to redeem and transform all of the negatives in our lives to positives. The pain and suffering of this world can be overwhelming. The darkness of our hearts and the consequences of our actions can be downright daunting, bleak, and feel inescapable. For every personal heartache or social ill known to humanity, the cross of Christ is the solution. The cross is beyond a symbol of hope. It's a revelation of the life-giving, transforming power available to all who thirst. My friend Les was a debt collector. The sort you don't want to meet, he may do something to you if you don't pay your debts. But in that job, which involves some physical violence, he lost everything that was valuable in this life. And one day as he was in his house, minus to plus came through the door 30 years ago, dropped on his mat. And although he wasn't a reading man or religious man in any way, the Holy Spirit worked on this man, this minus. 
and told him, pick up the leaflet and read it. As he read these words, the Holy Spirit worked a miracle in his heart and his minus was turned to plus. I know him. He was a, a lovely friend. He's with the Lord now. He was in our church that I led in the Forest of Dean. His testimony was staggering, a staggering testimony, a kind of man you couldn't meet now or meet when he was alive. But you'd never believe the minus that he was till he came to the cross and he became plus. Such a powerful influence for the kingdom of God. His wife, his wife lost her husband in South Africa. Her husband was shot by rebels many times. Shot through many times. She was a wild person at that time. But she came to Christ. Her testimony is also staggering. And Herman Les in the church. Sue and I used to love going to their tiny little home. It was a tiny little home, just barely two rooms. But in those two rooms was a sense of the, the action of God upon lost human beings. They came to speak to our youth group. We had a youth group of 21 met in our front room. They loved sitting all over each other. <laughs> Part of the joy of coming. And Les and Mo, two old people, shared their testimonies with the young people. And there wasn't a murmur, just the sound of jaws dropping as they considered what God had done in their lives. I believe if we can get hold of this very nature of God, that he's a God who turns his minus to plus, we too will be transformed in the way that we live our lives. Let me read something to you. We're going to go to the book of Jonah. We're going to go to Jonah chapter 1. But I want to read to you, before we get there, they've got some other introductory things to say. In Jonah 4 verse 2, we get the nub of the story of Jonah. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And that was Jonah's complaint. <laughs> I wonder what it would take for him to praise. His complaint that the very nature of God was like that, and he knew it, so he didn't want to go to his enemies. He didn't want to go to these people that persecuted the people of Israel and violently were known for their violence and their atrocities in the world at that time, the worst army on the earth at that time, the Assyrians. I won't go into what they did. They did dreadful things to people as they tortured and persecuted people. And Jonah, who was sent to preach the gospel to them, actually he was sent to preach disaster to them. <laughs> he didn't want to go because he says, I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. (laughs) I don't want them to be saved. I want them to go to hell. I don't want to share heaven with that ragamuffins. And that's that's the heart of the book of Jonah. But we this morning, I want us to get hold of the heart of God, that that's who God is. He's a God of mercy, of love, of forgiveness, of transformation, of changing minus to plus. If you have minus in your life this morning, let me tell you something. God's got a big plus that he wants to use it for. He wants to do something positive and wonderful through the cross of Christ. Look, you know this is true, that this is the very nature of God. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Can I read it to you, please, in the message version? I love this version of Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10. Just soak this up in your spirit this morning. Here we go, Ephesians 2, verse 1. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy, And with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own, with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus our Messiah. Now God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he's gotten ready for us to do. Work we'd better be busy about doing. Don't you like it? Isn't that a wonderful description of those, of those verses? And then one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is the story of Joseph. Now, there's a minus to plus. And so many lessons to us about the nature and sovereignty and patience of God with human beings. At 17 years, he was thrown into, he was, he was thrown into slavery. And a short time later, he went to prison. At age 30 years, he came out of prison and became the prime minister of the country. For two years in prison, 
He was totally forgotten by everybody except God. At 39 years, 22 years later, he had the opportunity to sort out his relationship with his brothers and experience total forgiveness. Let me read something to you that he said. Genesis 50, verse 19 to 21. Genesis 50, verse 19 to 21. Father died. When father died, brothers thought, Joseph's going to get his own back on us. He's only kept back from us because dad is alive. How are we going to stop him? Jo Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about the salvation of many lives. Let me read you two more verses about God and his nature. It says this. I is Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. For I am God. This is God speaking, obviously. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand I will accomplish all my purpose. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What has God got purposed for us? I've been reading about revival. My daughter did a very dangerous thing. My youngest daughter, she got me this book on great revivals. Very dangerous to give me a book on revivals. It's got me inspired. It's got me excited. It's got me thinking, what's God going to do here in Hailsham? Why not Hailsham? Why not your street? Why not your school? Why not your college? Hallelujah. I've been reading about revival. The nature of God, this nature of God to turn minus to plus, breaking out, as it did in the book of Jonah, also in the country of Wales, of all places. We live right next door to Wales, in the forest of Dean. But in that place, a young man called Evan Roberts, he felt called to be trained for the ministry. When he felt called to be trained in ministry, you have to understand, this guy left school at age 12 to become a minor because his dad fell sick. He took his father's place. The family was so poor, they needed him to go to work. From age 12 to age 26, he was a minor working down the pits. One of the roughest places you could work where you learnt some words that were not in the English dictionary. But he didn't learn much else. So before he could go into the ministry, they had to send him to school. So at age 26, he's sent off to school. He's a godly young man. He loved God. 
and he sought God for revival. While he was there, he went to a meeting that was run by a guy called Seth. And as he went to this meeting, the Spirit of God came upon him and touched him in such a powerful way. Seth Joshua, his name was. He says in his own words, I was overwhelmed by a great sense of God's love for me and my own unworthiness. He was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he then felt God say to him, go back home and talk to the youth. I'm going to do a work in Wales such as I've never done before. This young, uneducated man, or a being educated young man in his 20s, he went back. He goes back to his family, to his mum and his brother, and says to his mum and his brother, they say, what are you doing at home? You're meant to be at school. And he said, no, no, God's, the, actually his words were, the Holy Spirit has told me to come home. And they said, well, the Holy Spirit hasn't told the pastor because he didn't announce anything on Sunday morning. And it's now Sunday evening. He said, that's because the pastor doesn't know yet because I haven't told him. Can you imagine the job of the pastor? This young man come back from school. God's told me I've got to speak to all the youth. He says, well, look, tell you what, I'll give you one slot. On the Monday night, we have a prayer meeting. You can come to after the prayer meeting We'll hold on to some of the youth. We'll give them the invitation, and you can talk to them. There were 16 youth and one little child who'd come with one of the youth. And he had that meeting. He shared with them the vision of God that God was going to save throughout the whole of Wales. And this youth group were overwhelmed. They were there till after midnight as the presence of God worked upon these young people and the little girl. Well, to cut a long story short, by the end of two weeks, they couldn't get the people in the building. There were over 800 people. And a friend, I've been reading from uh, Professor Orr about what happened in those months, those first few months. And he says, a friend said uh, to a Welsh friend, I'd like to come and see what God's doing in your country. I've read about it in the paper. I'd like to come and see it. He said, oh, you can come. I'm in it. Come, join me. So he, he went to join him. And he said, so when does the meeting start? He says, well, around six. Oh, when does it end? Midnight. What, six hours? He said, no, not six hours. We start at six in the morning and we finish at midnight. <laughs> what? How does a preacher keep going? Oh, he said there were 17 preachers yesterday. 17 preachers! One was eight years old, and the oldest one was 84 years old. Well, who does the music for all that time? The Holy Spirit does the music. We have one song, which is usually that song, Here is Love Vast as the Ocean. That's when that song really took off. And uh, we have that song, or a song like it, and then everybody sings. Their own songs. There's no musical instruments. And everybody sings in the spirit. And people are overwhelmed. If you say, let us pray, he described what happens when you say, let us pray. Everybody's absolutely extempore in prayer. Absolutely overwhelmed with a burden for the people living next door to them, for their street, for the pit. Such a minus to plus took place that even in the pit, 
And I've read about this and really tried to get to the heart of it. And it's true. There's a story told of a guy who gets saved from the pit. And the language in the pit changed. There was no more blaspheming, no more swearing, no more cursing, no more beating pit ponies. The pit ponies were totally confused. So he describes the conversation with the pit pony. The guy has to stand with the pit pony. He's got his arm around the pit pony and his hat on. And the pit pony's looking at him. There's no swearing, no cursing, no beating. He said, no, come on, Betsy. This is what the description is that Professor Orr describes. Come on, Betsy, please move this coal for me. You know we have to move the coal today. I do love you, Betsy. Come on, Betsy. And Betsy's ears are down. What are you saying? Is, is this the same language as we had last week? I don't understand. Why aren't you beating me? What's going on? What a, apparently, it took weeks for the pit ponies to work again. They were so confused by the minus to plus that had taken place in their lives. For the better, we should say, for those poor guys. <laughs> Over 100,000 new people came into the church before 12 months was out. Over 100,000 new people. In this conversation about how it would be from 6 a.m. to 12 midnight, um, he asked about, what about Evan Roberts? Will Evan Roberts be there? Will he be speaking? He said, nobody knows. What, not even Evan Roberts? No, not even Evan Roberts. Evan Roberts asked the Holy Spirit, where do I go next? And when he just turns up at the meeting. He's not the only person. And when he comes, he preaches, and then he moves on to the next one. Hallelujah. He describes an occasion where once he got to the church, and he's at the back, there's people outside, there's people up the aisles, there's people in the seats. This is a country that was really going to the dogs. Sounds like another country to me. Anyway, there's <laughs> and he's at the door, and he can't get to the pulpit. The pulpit's here, and he can't get to it. So he has to walk on the shoulders of the people to get to the pulpit. When he gets to the pulpit, he's got to here. There's no way to the pulpit. People are on their knees. People are weeping. People are seeking God. People are calling out to God for their salvation. He can't get to the pulpit. So he steps on the shoulder, onto the pulpit, over the pulpit, in the pulpit, squeezed against the pulpit. And he says, he said, he said, the, the, the historian who wrote this said, he said, let us pray. And he let all heaven loose on the meeting. They were just all over the place, praying, 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 seeking God. Just This friend that went with a friend, by the way, about six hours into the meeting, he said, I want to know Christ. How do you get to know Christ? No one's told me yet. No one's preached about what it means to be a Christian. Please help me. Hallelujah. That's why heaven kissed her. But my friends, it's not just meant to be history. Has God changed? Has God changed? Wow, I'm doing all right. I'm okay. Let's carry on. Jonah chapter 1. We're going to read it. It's a wonderful story. If you get a chance this afternoon, just find yourself a quiet spot. Read Jonah 1 to 4. It's a very short book. It's a wonderful book. This prophet really existed, by the way. This prophet prophesied to Jeroboam 2. And he said to Jeroboam 2, that's the second Jeroboam, 
who, by the way, was very successful. He reigned for 41 years in the northern kingdom. At that time, he expanded the kingdom maximum. At that time, the economy was brilliant. At that time, it had a brilliant politician. But the Bible says this, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because economic success isn't what God's looking for. Righteousness exalts a nation, not economic success. Not power, not politics. Righteousness exalts a nation. And it was Jonah that prophesied to Jeroboam to expand the kingdom. But then God said to him, go to Nineveh. And the story is quite satirical in a way, but it's true because Jesus even referred to it. Jesus said, as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so I will be crucified and buried for three days and then rise again. Hallelujah. Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord. Oh, you've got it. We better read it in your version. Now the word of the Lord. Let's read it, shall we? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, the opposite direction, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, notice. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God! Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Yes? Next? <laughs> ah, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where have you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. He confessed his sin to them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O oh Lord, notice, they're not praying to their gods. O oh Lord, using the name Yahweh, the very character and nature of God, 
Let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord. We're now back in Isaiah 46. Have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What a story. It has a message for us, summed up in one word, down, down. Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down into the boat. He went down into the belly of the boat. From the belly of the boat, he went down into a deep sleep. From the deep sleep, he went down into the guts of the fish for three days. Jonah is a manual on how not to do evangelism. <laughs> Never thought of it like that, but it's true. See, Jonah was a racist. He had no desire to see any other nation saved but Israel. Happy to prophesy to Israel, but he was prejudiced and racist. He was rude downright rude. He offered no help in the storm. You didn't find him bailing out water, helping to row the boat. No, he's sleeping. He didn't share his faith, only his failings. I'm running away. What sort of, what sort of gospel is that? I'm running away from the presence of God. Now, does that sound like a good gospel to you? He took responsibility. Let's get some positives for the guy. He took responsibility. He said, I am the problem. Throw me into the sea. He took responsibility for the problem. My friends, I believe we're at that point. I believe we're at that point. If you're not happy with Britain, if you're not happy with your school, your street, your family, Whatever situation, if to you it's one great big minus, take responsibility for it and own it. Because you, the local church, with the message of the cross, is the answer to the world. Please get that. Please get it. And what does God think about this? God wants repentance to come to all men and all women. It's why he's delaying his second coming. He's delaying to give time for people to repent. In Britain, we've lost confidence in the gospel. And yet it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Yes, to the Jew first, but also to every other person. He was a rebel. Holy Spirit, help us. He was a rebel.
Let me say it again. He was a rebel. He ran away from the Great Commission. Go into all the world, to all nations. Preach the gospel. Baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you to the very end of the age. There's a condition on him being with us to the end of the age. That we're a gospel proclaiming, disciple-making community. Have you noticed how the presence of God has stepped up amongst us? I'm just being honest, sharing from the heart. Have you noticed how the presence of God has stepped up in our worship since we've been reaching out to the bowship? Have you noticed that? I've noticed it. Have you noticed that since we've reached out to our lovely brothers who live at the bowship? <laughs> it's been more of a blessing to us than them, you know. It stirred us to come to prayer meetings. It's grabbed our hearts, hasn't it? It's grabbed mine. And the presence of God is more upon us as we do that. I noticed it in another church that I was in. I was in the Bournemouth church. I was placed there by the college that I studied at. I was placed there to work alongside a Roger Smith, a hero of mine, the only person that could truly manage me apart from Sue. And this, uh, this situation, God showed us to reach to the unreached nation of the Toposa, which we have been doing in South Sudan, and to reach to the drunkards, the addicts, the prostitutes, and the lost in Bournemouth. So we both lived in that part of town, and the church was often 20, 30, 40 people from that description I've just given <laughs> in the church. When that happened, we had to stop sitting in our seats to worship. We couldn't worship from our seats. It's true. We had to come forward and stand at the front. We didn't want to be with our seat. We didn't want the temptation even of sitting down in worship. We just were at the front. We put the chairs back a bit, meet at the front in the presence of God. People praying, weeping. And it wasn't anything we as leaders were doing other than as a church, we were reaching those people that God has mercy on. Because that's his nature. To reach to people who are broken, people who have failed, people who are violent, people who are, have messed up their lives big time. God's heart's breaking for those people. And as he persuaded us to make that our mission field, so he hit the church and the church. Honestly, I'm not exaggerating. The church grew like this. The church grew like this by salvation, not transfer growth. Some of the people that came through that route from those backgrounds are leading churches today. Hallelujah. They were brought in. They were brought in. Just on the wind of the Spirit, there's one man who had come to Christ and he'd come to discipleship. Well, when did you first start coming? Well, the first time I came, I came to the door. I felt something in there was electric, and I ran. And then the next, he was from a real rough background. The next time he came, he said, I, I came in, I made it in, and I made it to halfway through the worship. When that worship happened, I couldn't stand in that building any longer. I was gone out the door. And then the following week, I got to the front. 
and listen to the word. And as I listened to the word, I was overwhelmed. I only had one thing to do, fall on my face and confess Jesus and give my life to Christ. And that was that guy's story of how he came to church. Praise the Lord. Yes. As you know, we went to South Sudan. I'm going to finish in a moment and we'll respond. I went to South Sudan. I was really quite overwhelmed. First of all, I had to confess my sin to God. I didn't want to go, you know. It's the first time. It's the first time in all my times of going overseas, I didn't want to go. It was only because Simon put me on the spot and said, I need you there on the team. Is this true, Sue? I really didn't want to go, did I? And I complained about it. Fancy complaining about such a calling. It was just fear. It was fear. Definitely fear. And also feeling weary with it. Feeling, well, they've got a revival now. What do I need to go for? The revival's happening. Why am I going to be going anyway? I struggled. I wrestled. But I went. And when I went there, I saw what I would have missed out on had I not gone. The church, worshipping in a thunderstorm under a sycamore fig tree with the rain coming down so heavily it was like stair rods. What were the church doing? No drums, because it was too wet to play their barrels that they play. No instruments, no worship leader, nobody leading. Just the presence of the Holy Spirit in the thunderstorm. People jumping, laughing, welcoming each other, praying for each other spontaneously, getting hold of each other. Raw church, no books, they were illiterate. The Bible had to be quoted, not read. Because you couldn't read. Anyway, the rain was too heavy. No covering, no chairs to listen to the word. The word was given standing up. And that's how they meet every week. In fact, it's not how they meet every week. They meet every day at nighttime. Thousands, thousands and thousands. The number of leaders we had in front of us, 17, I think it was, leaders, that was the number of believers that we'd coerced into the kingdom 12 years ago. Forced them to be in the meeting almost. Now they were each representing thousands. That is the heart of our God. There are violent people. They're offensive. They raid. They're abusive. The only thing they don't abuse is their animals because they love them. Human beings are secondary. They raid other tribes. And kill people right from the age of our young people. If you go there to preach the gospel 12 years ago, they'll stone you. Literally. Tell you what to do with your gospel. Now thousands falling into the kingdom of God. All this has given me a great desire. 
unlike Jonah, to see a move of God in our town and in our church and in every heart that I'm looking at now to see the nature of God get hold of us. Let's stand together.